This is our fifth and final time to speak from the book of Job, the Lord willing. We shared on how not to help the hopeless, how to help the hopeless, how to relate to those hope-robbing critics. And the last time I spoke was how to hope when you don't know how. And today we're going to share the fifth and final lesson, I believe, that the Lord has revealed to me from this book, how to always have hope. Can we say that? How to always have hope. Job, a man whom God said had no guile. He was perfect in all of his ways. He was blameless. And he allowed Satan to attack him and took away everything that he owned, including the respect of his wife and the lives of his children, attacked his health and alienated him from all of his friends. Only three showed up and they stared at him for a week. Then when they began to speak, they began to criticize him. Now, we all know many times suffering is caused by some fault of ours. Who knows that? But not always. And in this case, it was not Job's fault what was going on. And so his friends began to search him, interrogate him, put him on the defensive, which eventually got him into error. But in the midst of his trials, there's some real revelation Job had. One was his expression of trust. Though God slay me, yet I will trust him. The Lord gives, the Lord takes, blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, even if God turns against me, I'm not going to let go of my trust in Him. And we know God doesn't turn against us, but Job was such a man of faith, and yet his friends attack. I believe that Satan was also attacking him there, because the first comfort Eliphaz, in his first diatribe against this hurting man, begins relating to him some things spoken to him by an evil spirit. Things like, if God doesn't have mercy on angels in heaven, why should he show you any kindness, you lowly man? And this is a demonic view of things. And so I think the accuser of the brethren was at work behind the scenes to bring this man down to cursing God. I mean, obviously his wife told him to, and he he refused, but he began to be angry at God and, and insinuate some things about God that were not true. And then a fourth friend, Elihu the Buzzite, shows up and He's a young guy who eventually disappears, but he begins to use religion in the most cruel way, mixing declarations of praise for the awesomeness of God while slandering this poor guy who's suffering with boils laying on a bed of ashes. And then God shows up and begins to reveal his greatness to Job, demonstrating his greatness by the way God views nature, which is an amazing revelation of God. If you, if you read any part of Job, you've got to read the things that God says and meditate on them. There's a lot of stuff to chew on there. And in the middle of that is where we're breaking in here into the conversation God is having with Job. Chapter 40, verse 1. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Having revealed himself and continued to reveal himself to Job with rhetorical questions and astounding descriptions of nature and his relationship with it, God is very direct with this sick and hopeless man from us called Mr. Job. This reminds me of something God said later through the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 29, he told Isaiah, Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? 
If God is our maker, then surely He's worthy of our trust. Amen? And then later in Isaiah 45, He says, Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say that you have no hands? He has no hands. This is a ridiculous position we find ourselves in any time we doubt God. Any time we question His authority and His integrity, we're basically telling our Maker you didn't know what He was doing. The sustainer of the universe doesn't know what's going on. Our call as His creation is to put our trust in Him no matter what. And to know that we know that we know the story is not over. If you found the hope of salvation, you're eternal. All your problems are temporary. You're going to outlive them. That's right. All your prayers have already been answered. The day you call, I will answer you. But they're answered somewhere along the timeline of your life. You see, anytime God does something, He starts at the end and backs up to the beginning. Christ was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's where He started before He made the world. Then He backed up to the beginning, like my moonwalk. And made everything that is. That's called predestination. He has destined you and I to be conformed to the image of that Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. And in Him backing up from the future to the beginning, He left steps for us to walk in. So somewhere along the pathway of your life, your prayers have been answered. Your answer is not coming to you. You're going to your answer. And so in the midst of that journey, we rejoice. We will rejoice and be glad we have the hope of salvation. Being humbled by God's appearance and these unanswerable questions, Job is quick to repent with genuine contrition. He says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like His? Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and array yourself with glory and beauty. Impossible. Job is covered with painful boils while sitting in ashes, scraping his oozing sores with sharp pieces of pottery. He is not so glorious. He's not beautiful so much. Especially after being relentlessly accused by four well-meaning friends, is here blessed with a visit from the Almighty Himself, the first part of which we talked about last time, and the concluding part we hope to complete today. After establishing the fact that Job is not God... God goes on to talk about his humbling of the proud and how he would confess to Job if Job can do the same. Then to illustrate his greatness, he talks about two strange creatures. The first one is behemoth. We don't know what this animal is. No one knows for sure. It could be a dinosaur. Some surmise a hippopotamus or the elephant. Others, others have other theories. 
But in verse 19, we see why God mentions this beast. He says that the behemoth is the first of the ways of God. So this is one of the earlier creatures that he made. And only he who made him can bring near his sword. In other words, only his maker can put fear in his heart. The contemporary English version says, I made this beast more powerful than any other creature, and yet I am stronger still. Here again, the omnipotence of the Creator is communicated as being over all His creation, including the greatest parts of it. Chapter 41 is devoted to an even stranger critter called Leviathan. In chapter 41, verse 1, he says, Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you leash him for your maidens? Verse 80 says, Lay your hand on him, remember the battle, and never do it again. Indeed, any hope of overcoming Leviathan is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Establishing the point of the power and fierceness of this beast, God goes on to speak of his own superiority and mastery over Leviathan and over all else. In verse 11 of chapter 41, Who then is able to stand against me? Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. You know, there's a verse in Proverbs that says, God made all things for himself, even the wicked for the day of doom. God is so awesome, even his greatest foe winds up working for him. Because of his omnipotence, he makes sure that all things work together for good. For those who have been called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So everything in your life, God can use to turn it out for good to make you and I more like Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Who is Leviathan? The word Leviathan means a wreathed animal or a serpent. Some would say the crocodile or some large sea monster or again a dinosaur. Figuratively, the constellation of the dragon, also as a symbol of Babylon, is called Leviathan. And Leviathan means mourning. When you deal with this creature, you're going to mourn. Earlier, while lamenting the day he was born, Job spoke of Leviathan when he said, in chapter 3, verse 8, cursing the day he was born, he said, May those who curse it curse the day, those who are ready to arouse Leviathan. Implying the hardships of his life, resenting the fact he was even born. Thus using this creature to imply the awful terribleness of his life. In the Greek Subduagent, an early translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the word Leviathan is translated dragonta, meaning dragon. So Leviathan could mean dragon. While speaking of the Israelites' deliverance from the Egyptians through the parting of the Red Sea, we see the word Leviathan used in Psalm 74.14. It said, You broke the heads, 
that is the pharaohs, the rulers of Leviathan in pieces, and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Remember, the armies that had oppressed them were drowned in the Red Sea, and they danced in the midst of those bodies, washed up on the shore, singing, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. This oppressive force here in Psalm 74 is called Leviathan. The psalmist, I think, uses this creature to describe the government and armies of Pharaoh that were destroyed when God unparted the Red Sea and the waters came back together. The fourth place we see Leviathan mentioned in the Bible, unlike the earlier psalm, is clearly speaking of some kind of creature that God made to play in the ocean. Psalms 104, verse 26 says, There is that Leviathan which you have made to play there, speaking of the seas. In the fifth and final place this word is used in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah is talking about God's judgment on certain enemies of Israel, who he also calls Leviathan. In Isaiah 27.1, he says, quote, In that day, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. Unquote. In Ezekiel 29 and Ezekiel 32, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is spoken of as though he were a monster that had been pulled out of the water and judged. Who would agree Leviathan's not good? Daniel 7 speaks of dreams about creatures coming out of the sea, which are the nations that God is dealing with and using in his dealings in the earth, in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Revelation 12 talks about Satan and calls him a dragon. 12.7 says there's a war that broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So with these observations, we ask again, who or what is Leviathan? Is he a very scary animal, an oppressive army, an evil dictator, a wicked nation, or nations? Or could he be Satan? Depending on the context, maybe. But here I think that here Leviathan might be some kind of water-dwelling beast that is absolutely terrorizing. However, there are some things God said about Leviathan that make me wonder. In his previous description of creation, he doesn't break out into poetic descriptions like he did when he talked about delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt. He says, I bore you on eagle's wings and got you out of your slavery. Well, we know they didn't actually get on eagle's backs and be carried on wings, but meaning God in his divine power helped them supernaturally to go their shoes didn't even wear out and their old people didn't die until they had gotten to freedom in the wilderness and of course through their complaining all the original generation died and the new generation went and inhabited the land but here in job he hasn't been talking like that he's been giving actual descriptions of animals and beasts and his relations to them so he could be he shifted gears and get gets back into poetic descriptions but it says that leviathan's Chapter 41, verse 18, Leviathan's sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lights, sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke 
goes out of his nostrils as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame goes out of his mouth. Strength dwells in his neck and sorrow dances before him. Awesome creatures. Sounds like a dragon to me. While God may be using poetic expressions to describe Leviathan, keep in mind he had not done so earlier in describing creation. Verse 24, it says, Leviathan's heart is as hard as stone, even as hard as a lower millstone. So Leviathan is cruel. Verse 33 of Job 41 says, On earth there is nothing like Leviathan, which is made without fear. He beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of pride. I'm not saying Leviathan's the devil, but I do find these parallels to be interesting. With that being said, let's look again at our awesome God when he spoke of Job's total inability to deal with Leviathan. Back to the first part of Job 41. Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Would God be asking these questions of Job if it were not possible to be true in his divine realm of eternal reality. No wonder he goes on to say, lay your hand on him, remember the battle, never do it again. Indeed, any hope of overcoming it is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has preceded me that I would pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. So this is an awesome creature That if it could speak, or if it speaks, it begs God for a covenant. It makes supplications to Him. To continue to focus on who or what Leviathan is actually misses the point in the text, which is really about who God is. He is so much greater than the worst beast you and I could ever imagine or dream of, be He natural or supernatural, political or military. God is awesome. To some, God may appear to be trying to scare Job with these revelations of his awesome self and his creation with such terrifying words. But actually, he is restoring Job's faith. Because if the Creator is all-powerful, then he is worthy of all trust. What's the opposite of cold? What's the opposite of light? What's the opposite of God? What's the opposite of God? He has no opposite. His greatest enemy does not begin to match him. Because all that exists is created. Nothing is greater than his maker. Having heard from the Almighty so strongly, Job humbles himself again for failing to trust in his maker. Job 42 verse 1, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak, you said. I will question you and you will answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye 
sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Already covered in dust and ashes. Dust from broken pottery. Dust from decaying skin and ashes in which he was laying. It does not take much for Job to humble himself before God and repent. That's the blessing of hard times. If you're already knocked down, guess what? You're already in a position of humility. Take advantage of it. God knows it's hard to humble yourself when you're full of pride. But when your pride's been crushed, take advantage of it. Because He is near to the contrite in heart. Such is the advantage we can have when we are humiliated and knocked down in life. Since we are already down, it should be easy to assume this low position of humbling ourselves before God in prayer. Petition repentance when we need to do so. James chapter 4 verse 1, the brother of Jesus wrote, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Which is what happened to Job. While he was still repenting, God calls for repentance to his first three friends and calls for Job to pray for them, which may not have been easy. So it was, verse 7, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, he was the first one, the one that quoted the evil spirit, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, Go to my servant Job and offer up yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job hath. They harshly judge this man. The Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. So when helping people with their troubles, we must be careful to speak the truth in love, but do not cross the line into condemning them. This can come back on us. And so these people needed some prayer. Who would agree? So Eliphaz the Timonite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord commanded them. For the Lord had accepted Job and the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. What happened to Elihu the Buzzite? I can only give you my opinion. Maybe he ran away, but you can't run from God, can you? I think because he was younger, God just ignored the nonsense that had come out of his mouth. He wouldn't have opened his mouth were it not for these older guys. This is why the Bible tells us not to cause little ones to stumble. He'll hold you accountable for it. These guys were held accountable, I believe. That's why he didn't even deal with Elihu didn't need prayer. He, he was rebuked just by God's appearance. No doubt he maybe he was already on his face repenting. I don't know. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. If Job had allowed bitterness toward his friends to take root in his heart, he could have hindered his restoration because there would have been reason for blame in him. This was a blameless man, God had said. Refusing to forgive is a sin that can rob us of blessings and needed restoration. Can I get an amen? 
Not only was Job's relationships with these three guys restored, but also all his relatives, this guy had family that never showed up, and the other acquaintances who had all but abandoned him. Verse 11, Then all his brothers, where had they been? All his sisters, and all those who had been his acquaintances before, came to him and ate food with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a piece of gold. Forgiveness is a beautiful thing. He came through it richer and he came through it with relationships restored. Maybe you have been unjustly accused and relationships have been severed. Pray for him. God can fix the roughest scenario. Give him a mess. He'll make a message. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep. Chapter 1, he only had 7. 6,000 camels. Chapter 1, he only had 3. 1,000 yoke of oxen. Chapter 1, he only had 500. And 1,000 female donkeys. Chapter 1, He only had 500 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters, replacing the ones he lost. And he called the name of the first Jemima, the name of the second Kezia, and the name of the third Karen Hapach. Now, the definitions of these girls' names is interesting. Jemima means pancakes. No, I'm teasing You're awake. You're awake. Jemima means warm, affectionate, mild dove. Who loves Jemima? The name of the second was Kezia. It's related to the word Kezia, which is a bark used for perfume. How many wished you were sitting by Kezia this morning? Now listen to this. The ladies are going to like this. Karen Hapach means makeup. Literally means eye paint. These girls were beautiful. They smell good and they look good. Job was blessed. In all the land were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Now, something the Bible doesn't mention here, but I believe it's implied, Job found favor in the eyes of his wife again. Remember? She wanted him dead. She wanted him dead. She wanted him dead. And then in, I think, chapter 19, his lament before he gets the revelation that his Redeemer lives, he said his wife couldn't stand him. He said his breath bothered her, basically. She gave him ten more kids. Somebody said that'll teach her to turn against him. So everything was restored double. Now, if he had ten kids before, and now he has ten kids, that's not double, right? He should have had twenty. Well, poor Job's wife. But when it comes to people who have spirits, eternal souls... We really don't lose them permanently when they die. 
To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. It's simply a change of locations. Departing your earth suit, going to your heavenly body. Or waiting, depending on your theology, waiting on the resurrection. So he was going to see those kids again. So he didn't lose ten kids, he just said goodbye to them for a long time. So he had ten, now he has twenty. See? You see that? After this, Job lived. After this, Job lived. After this. Can we say after this? this. Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. Great, great, great grandkids. Awesome. Awesome. Good looking ones too. So Job died old and full of days. What a story. What a story. The last message was on how to hope when you don't know how. When there is nothing to hope in, how do you hope? Hope in God. Just hope in, hope in Him in anyway. When you don't know how to hope, trust in the Lord. Hope is a result of trust. Trust in God. Realize that the lack of hope reveals a need to trust. And finally, in God we trust is our national motto. It's time that as believers we do it. It would be a terrible thing. Christians would be up in arms if they took that off of our money. Why isn't it in our hearts? Symbolism is important, but life is more important. Reality is more important. And if they do take it off our money, we're still going to trust in the Lord. Amen? Amen. So today's sermon is how to always have hope. How to always have hope. Pursue knowing God. Job came through that thing knowing God. He had questions that God answered. Knowing God was his solution. And if he had boils for the rest of his life, he was going to be okay. Because God had revealed His awesomeness to him, His trustworthiness to him. Of course, he's thankful that he didn't. Knowing God is a pursuit of the Christian. It's not just getting saved. It's not just getting eternal life. It's knowing God. Jesus said, I am the only way to the Father. What is that about? Just going to heaven when you die? No. It's about relating to your Maker. He's the way to get to know your Maker. We have been separated from Him by sin. Christ paid for our sins so that they can be forgiven. But we're not just forgiven and useless. We're forgiven of the barriers that have kept us from knowing God so that we can develop a lifestyle of pursuing the knowledge of the Almighty. Make up your mind this morning, I'm going to get to know God. The truth about Him. Not man's opinion of Him, but what the Word says about Him. And as the Holy Spirit reveals Him. Number two, pursue forgiving everyone. Can we say everyone? Everyone. If you have unforgiveness in your heart, guess what? That is a seed for hopelessness. When needs come across your path, or you come across a path of needs... Thoughts are going to flash in your mind because of unforgiveness. People can't be trusted. 
People are going to let you down. People this, people that. Unforgiveness is a seed that will create hopelessness. You want to get rid of hopelessness forever. Forgive everybody. You don't know what they did to me. I know I don't. But trust God. He'll handle it. Vengeance is His. He will repay. Unforgiveness is poison that we drink, hoping that hurts somebody else. Meanwhile, it's hurting us. And finally, pursue bringing hope to others. You bring hope to others. It will inspire hope in your heart. It just comes back to you. Who knows who this is? Dana Vollmer. Our city honored her with a little parade and a series of speeches about an hour and a half long at the Granbury Convention Center in the middle of our women's conference. And I was able to hear her speak. And she shared how that she, you know, she uh, had some victory at the 2004 Olympics in Athens. And then she didn't make the Olympic team to go to Beijing in 2008. She, she was behind by three one-hundredths of a second. She was devastated. She became hopeless. She lost her love for swimming. And she shared two things that she did that restored her. Number one, she went to Bali. Oh, that must be nice. But she didn't just go there to enjoy the beaches on that cluster of islands called the nation of Bali. She went there to bring hope to people who had fear of drowning by teaching them to swim. Because every year, a lot of kids die in the sea. She went to bring hope by teaching children how to swim. The second thing she did was when she came home, she became a greater team player than she was. She cheered and wished her teammates won more than she wished she won. And helped develop a culture of inspiration where they all fire each other up. They all build each other up. They all inspire hope in one another. May God help a church to be like that. Where we help one another. We don't condemn people that are wallowing in the pits of despair, but we are there for them to listen and to find ways to encourage them. Pursue knowing God. Pursue forgiving everyone. Pursue bringing hope others. Can you imagine being a gypsy living in a shack last year and you got hit with a Siberian winter where it was 30 degrees minus Celsius? 30 Celsius degrees below freezing for months? It was brutal. The ministry that we support, EI, was part of bringing coats and blankets to some of those people. This year we want to bring it to more of them. You want to have hope? Get involved in the coat drive. Watch this. Bridget, hi, I'm Katie, and we're here in Romania with European Initiative. We're getting ready to go out to all the villages um, and giving them hats and coats and gloves and everything and shoes um, to the gypsies, and it's just going to be so incredible. We're just so blessed to be here and doing God's will and helping other people who don't have the basic necessities that we're lucky enough to have.
pray for everyone in this room who is wrestling with hopelessness and despair. I pray, Lord, that today would be a seed that would create the fruit of unstoppable hope in the heart of every hurting person here this morning. Lord, I ask for the grace to forgive those who hurt us. And I ask, Lord, for a revelation of the need to know you and the way to do it. Lord, we know that you are near to those who seek you, who draw near to you with their whole heart. Help us, Lord, to become wholehearted about knowing you, not just in a church service, but Monday morning, when we get up in the morning and when we go to bed at night to remember you and to say, God, give me dreams tonight that will reveal me things about your greatness. I want to know you. Lord, I pray that every person in this church and in this room today would know you would truly know you and would make you known to this generation, this county, this community, and beyond in real time. Not just symbolically, but in reality, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.